that had a really funny name. The name of the restaurant, restaurant was Riddle's Penultimate Wine Bar. Back in the early 2000s, when I lived in St. Louis for a minute, this was a, a, a popular place and um, had enjoyed a couple of wonderful evenings there with friends. And it caused me to say, what exactly does penultimate mean? And why is this the penultimate wine bar? Well, it turns out the word penultimate is one less than ultimate. If you are counting chronologically, it, penultimate would be second to last, ultimate would be last. But often in, in the way we use the English language, ultimate means like the highest rated, doesn't it? It's the highest number, not because it's last, but because it's best. I just had the ultimate chocolate shake at, well, fill in the blank, whatever your favorite place is. I just had the ultimate barbecue at, I'm told around here, Stanley's, right? I just had the ultimate pie at the state fair. So penultimate would be one level below, the very best there is. And today, we're going to knock marriage down a notch. <gasps> Pastor, isn't that a little bit sacrilegious? Well, work with me. We're going to talk about marriage as penultimate. But first, let's dig into our text a little bit. Um, as usual, the Pharisees are intent upon questioning Jesus and trying to trap him. And they come up with a pesky issue that is, is very much alive in their culture in first century Judaism. It, it is an issue of how to interpret a passage from Deuteronomy 24. In this passage, uh, Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to them when you have a circumstance in which a woman is found to be, um, I don't even remember the word in English, there's not a good translation for it, but inappropriate. Um, uh, when a woman is found to be um, not pleasing and you write her a certificate of divorce. And then Moses goes on and his point is, if she moves on and she marries somebody else and that marriage is dissolved, she can't go back to the first husband. That is an abomination to the Lord. That's the point of Moses' writing. It is not in any way an endorsement of divorce. It is simply an acknowledgement that this thing is happening and he's putting boundaries around that unfortunate circumstance. But in first century Judaism, the debate was what exactly causes, what exactly is grounds for divorce? And there was a conservative minority who said only unfaithfulness, only marital unfaithfulness is grounds for divorce. But then there was a majority opinion that said, you know what, if she burns dinner, Ah, that's a divorce. <laughs> if he finds someone more attractive, oh, grounds for divorce. If they get into an argument and they're just tired of each other, grounds for divorce. 
The first one was funny. If you, as you go farther and farther down that list, it gets a little bit less funny, doesn't it? And in many ways, their divorce practice looked like that of the culture around us today, didn't it? No-fault divorce. Doesn't work out? Eh, just, you know, start over. And Jesus challenges them. What did Moses tell you? And they, they quote Moses. They quote Deuteronomy. And, well, they don't really quote it. They, they claim that Moses gave them permission. That's not quite how it goes. And Jesus takes them all the way back to the beginning, to God's design, God's plan, and he quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he reminds them, first of all, that, that um, well, he gives them several principles about marriage. First, Men and women both are created in the image of God. Second, he actually quotes from Genesis 2, which we heard read up here today, um, that, that God joins them together. That, that God takes the two and makes them one. They are yoked together physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially yoked together. And he says what God has put together, lest we think that marriage is just a human institution, what God has put together, let no human separate. And this kind of sends ripples through the crowd because it is so countercultural, and as it probably does in our day today, it made lots of people feel guilty kind of squeamish, kind of like, well, what does that say about my situation or my kids or my dear friends? And I hope they don't hear Jesus teaching because that could really make them uncomfortable or angry. So the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he has every opportunity to soften the blow, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, when a man divorces a wife and marries another, he causes her to commit adultery. And he says the same thing with the gender roles reversed. And in the, in the account in Mark, no exceptions are given. Now we would do well to note that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, again, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, gives some accommodation for abandonment. And we would do well to note that in St. Matthew's account of Jesus' same teaching, he includes the phrase, except in the incident or occurrence of marital unfaithfulness. So there, Jesus elaborates a little bit more and holds to the position of that conservative minority about when it is still sad tragic, but sometimes necessary for there to be a divorce. And I think it is very appropriate within the bounds of Scripture to include, uh, include abuse right in there with abandonment and unfaithfulness. But this gives us a really harsh teaching, or not harsh, but a countercultural teaching on divorce that is sometimes hard for us to accept. And before we turn to God's view on marriage, I want to talk a little bit about how we respond when Scripture brings us rules or laws that make us uncomfortable.
One thing that we tend to do is we resort to legalism or permissivism. By the way, just so you know, Microsoft Word doesn't think that permissivism is a word, but we're going to use it anyway. Is that okay with you? So legalism, one of my favorite definitions for legalism is finding out exactly where the line is, exactly how little you can get by with, and doing exactly and only that. What exactly constitutes marital unfaithfulness? And we often do that. We want to know just how much, how far we can go before it's considered official sin. Not just in marriage and relationships, but in, you know, you name it. Whatever our weakness or our, our negative proclivity might be. And then permissiveness is really just the other side of that coin. It's saying, well, what can I get by with? What, what things that may not be good and healthy for me are permitted under the law? What's the most I can get by with? And then when we are on this permissiveness side of this coin, here's what usually happens. And anyone who has dealt with addiction can attest to this. Eventually, we trip up, don't we? We stumble over that line, we fall on our face, and then we go, oh, well, as long as I've already sinned, as long as I'm already going to have to humble myself and repent at some point, I might as well just dive in head first. And then it's not just one, it's ten, or whatever the proclivity might be. Has anybody, don't raise your hand, has anybody ever experienced that rabbit trail, that spiral downward? This is what happens to us when we try to follow the letter of the law in our own strength. The other thing that happens to us when we try to follow the world's standards and use the world's standards to understand God's word is a concept I don't really like because we use this out of fear and we use this, not, we use this idea to, um, to rule out everything, but it's a concept that we often call the slippery slope. And I don't like to talk about a slippery slope to prohibit people from doing things that are perfectly acceptable in the kingdom of God. But I would suggest that you are on something that we could call a slippery slope when we permit sin in our lives. And first it's a little sin, but then we get comfortable with that and the next step into sin doesn't really phase us because it's just a progression. It's, we're just evolving a little bit at a time further and further and further down that spiral. And eventually our conscience gets seared, hardened, um, numbed, so that we are justifying actions that are far outside of God's intent. So this is one reaction that we often have and another reaction that we often have is to give lip service to God's word but to find ways for it not to apply to us. Have you ever tried doing that before? We look for some some mental exercise to figure out how God's word can be true and yet not applicable to our lives. Well, she looked at me the wrong way. That's abuse. <laughs> or 
oh, I don't know. We could spend all day thinking of silly examples of how we do this in various aspects of our lives. But we try to justify ourselves. And inevitably, we simply are trying to dumb down and manipulate God's Word. Let's talk a little bit about God's intent for marriage. So, first of all, we have to remember that we are created in the image of God. Men and women created in God's image. There is no place for us to think that this is all random and it doesn't matter. No, you are unique and special and important in God's eyes. And that is the starting point for singleness and for marriage. Second, we must remember that, that marriage is an institution given by God. What God has joined together, let no one separate. And just to give some clarity in, in terms of our culture, Christian marriage has always been different than civil marriage. It doesn't matter what the laws are. Our understanding of marriage has always from the beginning been different. A civil magistrate God may use to bring someone together, but it is God's church that teaches and nourishes the understanding that marriage is a covenant between two human beings, between a man and a wife and God. That has always been unique to Christian teaching and different than what you're going to get from government and society. Amen? Amen. What we practice and understand as marriage is unique and it comes from God himself. Third, Here's where the ultimate and penultimate comes in. Marriage is an icon, an image, a pointer, a reflection of Christ and his church. The ultimate marriage is Jesus, the groom, coming to take us, his church, as the bride. And Ephesians talk, Paul talks about that in Ephesians. Paul talks about this in Ephesians. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the, by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is the ultimate picture and image and reality of marriage. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to give penultimate, second to the most important marital instruction to you and I and to earthly folks based upon this ultimate example. And the Apostle Paul also quotes Genesis chapter 2. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. And then he flips it back to the ultimate. But I am talking about Christ and his church. When God creates marriage, the number one reason for this witness in the world is that marriage would be a witness to salvation in and through Jesus Christ. The number one reason for our earthly marriages is that it would be an image and a picture and a witness of how Jesus loves his church, how God is faithful 
faithful even unto death. When we are unfaithful, God is faithful. All through the Old Testament, when Israel turns to idols, uh, the Old Testament uses adultery to define their relationship to God. When they turn to idols, God says, you have committed adultery against me. So this image of God's faithfulness in the midst of human faltering and human failure pervades scripture. And Jesus, the groom, is coming back to take us and he makes us clean and holy and takes us as his own. And in this, in this icon, this image, this um, this picture, we understand our entire life between baptism and resurrection as an engagement. We've been bought with the price. We belong to Christ Jesus. We are his. We are betrothed to him, promised to him. We already belong to him. And when he returns, he will take us to be his own and gather us around the throne of God. That is why we, in communion, we have a foretaste of the feast that is to come. This marriage feast of the Lamb. So this ultimately is the purpose for marriage and it's a purpose that calls us into the heart and the character of God. So when we think about marriage, when we think about singleness, we are, we are directed not towards laws, not toward rules that just make things difficult and oppressive, but we're directed toward the, toward the unfailing love and faithfulness and character of God toward us. And here's another aspect of that. God's crazy about us. He loves us dearly and he can't wait to be with us around the throne in heaven for eternity. He goes to great lengths to ensure that that can happen, doesn't he? So, for us, that is what we're created for. Remember how Jesus took us all the way back to the beginning Adam and Eve were created to be walking in the garden in fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ever since the fall, that purpose for which we were, we were created has been hindered. Before Christ, it was really, really obscured. Now we can have relationship with the Father, but we still look forward to that day that we are uninhibited around the throne in heaven with Him. That is what we're created for, which means there is a longing inside of us, not only that only God can fill, but that will only be completely fulfilled in heaven, that side of the resurrection. My friends, I would suggest that it is that longing that only our Lord can fill in eternity in heaven that we misinterpret and that causes us to make all sorts of crazy decisions about our life here. Instead, that very longing, that, that hole in our heart that only God can fulfill, that, that is fulfilled in eternal life can lead us in singleness to put our hope in Christ. To recognize just how much God longs for us. How much he is crazy for us. In marriage it could help us keep Christ ultimate. And our marriage and our family penultimate. Knowing that, it, there, it, that marriage and family does fulfill some of that longing for a time. But ultimately it's still 
doesn't satisfy everything. It still reminds us that we were created for God in heaven. What do you all think about that? This is Christian hope. And if we lose sight of that hope, we put marriage in the wrong place. We put relationships in the wrong place. And whether we are single or married, we tend to malfunction. But this is why God called... So let's be a little bit practical here. What do we do about this? We could try to escape it. We could try to excuse it. But our Lord calls us to embrace this difficult teaching. Because in doing so, we recognize our failure. We recognize our sin. And instead of excusing it or brushing it off, we can, we can acknowledge we are sinners. At our worst, we've behaved just like the world and we have a tragic history of failed marriages and divorce and all of the pain that those who have been divorced know so well goes along with this. I don't have to explain that to you. And at our best, we still fall short of the glory of God. We still fall short of the perfection and the holiness that Christ exhibits toward us, the church. None of us, even in the very best of marriages, loves our spouse the way God loves us. So each and every one of us can embrace this as a call to confession, the ultimate. And we allow the ultimate marriage... God in Christ Jesus reconciling us to him to heal the penultimate. We allow Christ in us and our old selves having died and being a new creation in Christ to then bring healing to our earthly relationships. Whether we are never married divorced once, divorced ten times, in a blended family, have lost our spouse and are now exploring what it is to be single again, whether we are dealing with a childhood in blended family or having lost a, uh, a father or a mother for any reason, we fall on the ultimate. And we recognize that Jesus knows our pain that God understands what it is to be faithful even when folks, even when people are not faithful and that he will sustain us and bring us through. Amen? So this is our call. It's a call to repentance and whatever our circumstance, no matter how convoluted our journey may have been, Christ embraces us makes us his own, and walks with us, bringing healing to our relationships. I'd intended to talk more holistically about family, and I had a whole section on kids, uh, but I think a couple weeks ago it was a good 35-minute message. Uh, the rest will have to wait, but this foundation, falling upon Christ, will heal and sustain every family relationship. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we give you praise. We thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness. When it comes to these countercultural high standards for marriage and family, 
we recognize that we don't measure up, but instead of being lost in despair or guilt, we fall upon you, the Savior who forgives us, washes us clean, gives us a fresh start, and goes with us on our journey. It's in your name we pray. Amen.